This is a special Radioplasma presentation. Radioplasma is an independent local media outlet based in the city of Holyoke, Massachusetts. Aside of being a repository of stories, conversations, news, events, and performances, this is a media literacy workshop for youth in our community. For that reason, this session is a special feature made by students of the CARE Center. As part of their summer reading program, they were working with author Steve Bernstein, and during the summer, they were reading his book, Stories from the Stoop. As a way to wrap up the summer program, Steve Bernstein gathered with the students at the Care Center where this recording took place and he answered questions regarding the experiences learned from the book Stories from the Stoop. At the same time, this session becomes a model of practice for the students at the Care Center on how to conduct interviews and document these events in different formats like this podcast. Enjoy of this conversational interview with author Steve Bernstein, led by the students at the Care Center. I'm your producer and host, Johan Rashi Vega. Hello, my name is Ilcia Rose, and I have a passage here that Sylvia Torres wrote for Steve. Steve Bernstein is a mentor, a teacher, and an advocate for teens in trouble. I have known Steve for almost a year now. I first met him at the Care Center. He would help all the teen mothers study to pass their high set tests so they could graduate. Us teen mothers and teachers have been reading stories from the stoop, and I enjoy reading this book because it's a life story about him and what he went through as a kid growing up and how different his life was compared to all of us. This is something I could never tell happened to him by looking at him today. Just like all of us, we all have stories and all go through the bads and goods in our life. Today I'm interviewing Steve Bernstein because his story is very powerful and I would love for people to know his story and what he went through and why he wrote the book. Also, I'm interviewing him today because I want to learn the steps he took to writing his book. I want to write about my situation and how I got past it. Steve inspired me to tell my story. Thank you. Thank you, that was beautiful. Um, so Kayla has a bunch of questions, and uh, I'm not sure if Kayla, would you, would you like to read a few? And we can get the ball rolling. It looks like she has about 15 or 20 questions, so let's get started with Kayla. Hello, everybody. <laughs> I'm Kayla. First question is, what made you want to take the trip on bike? Since the very beginning of the book, the, right when I was about 14 years old, one of the ways that I had to be, or at least feel free, was to be able to ride my bicycle. I had a, what's called a Schwinn 10-speed Continental. It was a very high-end bike at the time that I saved all my money for and bought with my friend Anthony. And I saved that bike for many years until, of course, it got stolen like all the other bikes I had. But um, when, I move, when, I, when you read the story, I moved from neighborhood to neighborhood, from a, a, a non-white neighborhood where I was the only white kid to a white neighborhood where I really felt I didn't fit in because it wasn't uh, familiar to me. And the kids in that neighborhood, quite honestly, were quite racist, unlike myself. So I really only made one friend in that neighborhood. His name was Joe in the book. 
and Joe and I did a lot of things together. He was part of a, a, a gang, a loosely formed gang of other kids that he grew up with that I didn't know, nor did I want to know because they were not my kind of kid. They were racist, they were drunks, they were drug addicts, but me and Joe were clean cut kids and we did a lot of sports and things like that together. And one day I, I had the idea, and you'll learn about it in the book, I was running away. You didn't hear that yet where you are, but I'm giving you a little heads up. And one, and the way I was going to run away was get on my bike, leave the city, go up to see my Aunt B in Montreal, which was about 500 miles away, on bicycle. And Joe saw me in the neighborhood training for this trip where I had put weights, barbells on the back of my bike. And he was always into lifting weights with me. So he said, what are you doing? And I told him about the bike trip. And he said, well, I'm going with you. And at first, I didn't like the idea because I was really running away and wanted to be by myself. But since he was turning into such a good friend, I invited him and decided that that summer was going to be the best summer of my life. And I was going to hit the road from the Bronx all the way up to Canada on bicycle because I wanted to be free. Nice. So what was in your backpack? On the way there. First of all, does anybody know what trail mix is? You guys know what trail mix is? You know, there's different versions of trail mix. This was raisins and nuts. I know you like M&Ms. I didn't do M&Ms. That's not, to me, really trail mix. But it was uh, just a bunch of uh, food like that to have energy on the ride without having to stop and eat. So we just, you know, um, loaded up with trail mix, other kinds of food. A lot of clothes. These were um, what we called saddlebags over the back of the bike uh, that we just stuffed with as many t-shirts and shorts and stuff that some rain gear. Uh, I had all kinds of bike tools. Joe, on the other hand, wanted to be really equipped. So not only did he load up the, the saddlebags, he took a tent. He took a whole bunch of camping gear that we only used once, and you'll read about that in the last, next to the last story. But um, mainly stuff to survive day to day, a, a raincoat, things like that. Wow, that's a lot to take on a bike. Um, <laughs> how many breaks did you take on your trip? Like, how many breaks a day? That's a great question. Um, we were rugged young men. A 50-mile day was not out of the question. So imagine 50 miles back and forth to Springfield five times, okay, on a bicycle in one day. How many breaks? Probably every hour we'd stop and really drink maybe a quart of water, have some trail mix, maybe stop for lunch somewhere, and I would say three, four breaks on a day like that every day. Wasn't that, like, wicked hot and tiring? Awful. Imagine New York City, if you've ever been, I'm sure most of you have, tractor trailers, smog, pollution, July heat, rainstorms, thunderstorms, and you're riding a bicycle for miles and miles and miles. And you're getting out of the city, getting on some highways, getting on some small roads, cars zipping by, hot. We used to find some swimming holes if we were lucky, but basically, we overcame the heat by having so much fun, I would say, is what happened. How did you guys keep cool besides drinking water? Well, basically, the basic answer to that question is me and Joe were just the coolest guys to begin with. 
So we didn't have to keep cool. We were cool. No, we actually found some lakes and stuff on the way, and we'd stop. And, you know, if there was, like, we passed a, a, a homeowner on the way with the hose watering their grass or something, we'd ask to get squirted. Or sometimes we just sprayed each other with our water bottles type of thing. How long did it take you to get to your destination? All right, so the destination is the Bronx to Montreal. If I had a map, I'd show you how far that is. The, the, so along the way, there were probably 15 stops, maybe more. And the stops were uh, what's called youth hostels. A youth hostel is a place where if you're on the road on a bicycle, you could stop real cheap for like three bucks and stay in a place and have uh, a kitchen and a bunk to sleep in and just a a decent place to stay for the night, specifically for people on bicycles or hiking or something like that. But all told, I think it took three weeks to get to Montreal with all those stops. When really, if you were just riding straight, it should take you maybe five or six days, seven days, something like that. Did you need new tires for your bikes? Because I would think you would all those days. Well, right out of the city, Joe, who knew nothing about bicycles, knew nothing about riding, knew nothing about anything, blew his, blew his tire out. But I was able to fix it. But basically, the tires lasted the whole summer. So that's a good question. Maybe they were, you know, really good tires. People on the road that we passed with bicycles were losing their tires, but us, we were doing fine. We kept, you know, the main thing is you keep them inflated. Did you bike all the way back when you got there? You know, I don't want to spoil the story too much that you didn't get to. However, no, we stopped at Boston. Boston was the place that I was going to tell Joe that I was going one way and he was going another way. But we didn't go, we, we took a bus from Boston. Um, how did you know about the cheap bike stops on the way? Back in the day, if you were a member of what's called the youth hostels, American youth hostels, you get a little book, and the book shows you all the places, any area you want to go to, it shows you all the places along the way that you could stop and uh, spend the night. Um, Weren't you sore after the first day? How could you go on? Okay, as you'll read in the first story, we could hardly walk after the first day because it was 70 miles, and that was a crazy amount for two kids to ride the first day but I I made the decision to do it Uh, and yes we could hardly walk and where we crashed the first night where we stayed is a surprise that you'll read about in story number six number seven actually where um, we thought it was a campground but it ended up to be something way different it was so dark and we could hardly breathe we could hardly walk that we just stopped we unloaded we went to sleep and woke up to a very interesting crazy situation um what kind of people did you meet and how did you have time for girls on the trip we met everything from truck drivers who were the most friendly to older people who sometimes ran those youth hostels to um I don't know if you guys know or remember reading or hearing about a kind of a person called a hippie. Okay. What do you think a hippie is? Smokes a lot of weed. <laughs> yep. That's part of it. Um, and there's a lot of people who smoke a lot of weed today who I wouldn't call hippies necessarily. Know, but that's what yeah. 
So back in that time, in 1971, we were riding through Vermont, okay? And Vermont was known for what's called communes. And a commune is a house or a group of houses or a community where people all live together and they run a farm or they do some, something to, to make a living. <clears throat> and back then, southern Vermont was loaded with communes and it was always hippies. You've been to one. Okay, so you know. So in the story, you're going to see a very interesting one that Joe and I end up in where... Um, we learned for the first time pretty much because we didn't see many hippies in the Bronx. The Bronx had its share of interesting people, but not too many hippies. So we saw hippies, we met hippies, we saw, uh, and of course there's a romance story coming up for you if you haven't read it already, where uh, a young woman I met was in a group and Joe and I hooked up with this group and stayed pretty much all through to Canada. And they were a bunch of kids our age, but far better off than us. Uh, but we tagged along and made some good friends. And there were some interesting people in Canada. And then there was this one interesting guy right here in Sunderland who we were told couldn't talk. He was an older guy who took care of this place. And Joe had him talking in like a minute uh, by telling him some jokes. And... Um, he became a kind of a good friend on the trip. Um, back to the beginning of the story, I got a couple questions about your family. One of them was, who bought you your dog, Wolf? Well, that's a good question. Wolf is the first story about a dog that saved my life, but I couldn't save his. And Wolf came into my life because my old man had a plumbing business in a, in a store in the building, in a storefront. And my sister Amy had a boyfriend named Mike who was a sailor on a boat. And this dog, Wolf, was this big Malamute wolf, beautiful dog. But he was very lazy, not a great watchdog, and the, and the boat needed a watchdog. So Mike, my sister's boyfriend, went to my father and said, would you like to have this dog? And my father took one look at Wolf, was about 120 pounds and a, looked like a wolf, and said, yeah, I could use him as a watchdog. But Mike said he's not a watchdog. He just likes to sleep all the time. So my father took him anyway and put him right in the front glass uh, window where there was a shelf where Wolf would lay and sleep. And people, junkies, etc., who would break into the shop saw him and Wolf definitely scared them. But he came to our life through Amy's boyfriend. So your dad liked to gamble a lot? My dad was an alcoholic, an active alcoholic, does everybody know what that is? Uh, who did a lot of things. One of them was gambling. Uh, and you know, maybe every Saturday night he'd have a bunch of people over. And in particular, one night, he didn't have any money evidently, so he bet my dog. And I didn't even know about it. Meaning that if he lost the bet, he loses the dog. And this dog and I were so close, I found out the next day, and it basically devastated me. So, um, yeah, so my dad was a gambler, an alcoholic, you know, but I loved him. He was great. Uh, you know, he, underneath all that stuff, there's always a good person, usually. And I felt um, it was a tough life, but I felt uh, that my father had his problems. Any more questions, Kayla? 
Well, I have one from Desmariah here. Can I read it? It says, do you wish your life was totally different and nothing like that ever happened? That is a fantastic question because I often think about, I think as most of us do, when we get to a certain age about our lives and would I basically would I do it different if I had a chance to do it over again? Well, I'm going to tell you the truth, okay? You may have read my book or my stories and think I had a tough time. You may feel some of my stories, if it was your kid or if it was you, you'd have some, some sorrow or feel bad about what that kid went through. I couldn't feel more the other way, meaning when I look back on my life, I am grateful for everything that ever happened to me and every person I ever met. And the reason I say that is because when I look at myself today as a 64-year-old man, and I look back and I look at the stuff that I like about myself, my stories, my experiences, my adventures, who I met, who helped me become who I am, I'm very grateful for. Were there some close calls? Yeah, a lot of us have close calls. A lot of us might brush against some danger or even death or some really tough things in our life or tough individuals. But if we're lucky to get through it, that means we learn from it. And if we're lucky to stick around and do good things in our life and be good adults, be good people, that means those things taught us how to be strong and good. At least that's how I look at it. Does that answer your question, Desmariah? Thank you. Yes, AJ. What do you want us to learn from your stories? That's a beautiful question. And because I don't do this for, for many reasons other than, you know, telling my story gives me joy. Telling my story helps me come to terms with my own life. But more than that, telling my story brings me closer to people who read it. Why? Because then they learn about me. And then my hope, my dream is that through your life and through teachers and mentors and schools or by yourself, that you realize that you have a story to tell, to write, to share. It doesn't matter how you do it. And that when you do that, you're bringing those people into your life and you're breaking down walls. And breaking down walls leads to love, love for yourself and love for other people. And that's what telling your story does. So I tell my story to break down walls, my own walls, and I share my story, invite people to tell their story so they could feel the same kind of joy that I do. Does that answer your question? Get that, what kind of life? The life I had. Was best for me. Oh, oh, running away. Oh, excellent. Well, you haven't been able to read the beginning of the book, I don't think. Okay, so the beginning of the book talks about a lot about the beginning of my childhood. In the beginning of my childhood, I experienced a lot of rough things. I experienced uh, a father who, sadly was stricken with the disease of alcoholism and made him act and be a certain way that really wasn't him. But he was mean sometimes, violent sometimes, or took me places or exposed me to things that a kid should not see. So as I was growing older, 
life got more burdensome. I had to work very young, very hard. I had to be a top student. I had to take care of my younger brother who has um, something called Asperger's, which is like autism. Uh, I had to look out for my mom because the streets were violent, and my sister and my brother. And so consequently, it was kind of a rough life. And at a certain age, I finished high school, 16 years old, I skipped a grade, and I decided that I had enough, that I want to strike out and have my own life. And I wanted to escape and move on and try something new. It was a very short-lived plan, as you'll read in the book. But I had the, the, the insight that there's a better life for me somewhere. And somehow I'll get to it. Maybe not today, and it didn't happen right then. But I did want to escape, and I'll be honest about that. And that might sound like a coward's way out. Or really, I was just a kid that wanted a better life, and it wasn't happening for me. But I didn't escape. I came back. You'll read in the book. Start the book from the beginning and you'll see what I'm talking about. Okay? That was a great question. Thank you. Hi. Um, you had told us in class last time we had read that um, your mom had pulled out a tin box. And she pulled out her um, the postcard that you had sent her when you were on the biking trip. Um, how did that make you feel when she actually showed you that it saved her life? You're talking about when my mom was in hospice uh, last year. Okay. So, during that time, it was about a seven or an eight week period that my mother was dying in hospice. And um, every day was a different type of conversation because her mind was going. But at times she was very clear. And she told me things that I kind of had hints about, but I didn't know for sure. And then one day she told me about that. And what she said was, Stephen, do you remember that bike trip you took? Well, that saved my life. And I said, Mom, what are you talking about? And she said, well, do you remember that you sent me a postcard? And I had to really think, because it is 50 years ago, or close to it. And I said, yeah, I went to Amherst, and I stopped, and I got, me and Joe got, went in and got some postcards, and I got one, and I sent it home. And she said, well, I held that onto that, and I kept it, because it was a beautiful picture of downtown Amherst, and I wanted to live in a place like that. And my mother at that time was stuck in an alcoholic marriage with a child that needed a lot of attention. And she said, I took that postcard, and then I took your brother, and we moved. And I'll never forget that because she moved to Amherst and died in Amherst 50 years later, over 50 years later. And she credits that postcard to helping her move from a crazy tough time and tough place. So that's kind of a nice story on a, in and of itself. And I thanked her for that because I really, I didn't know, you know. I just knew that she needed to get out and get away and get on with her life and get away from the violence and the sadness, and she did it. And I was able to help. Thank you, Rose. Okay, Rose's questions are, have you run into any of the boys from the stoop who tried to rob your brother? Well, 
that story you're talking about is the first story of the book, right? And a kid came into the schoolyard looking for me to tell me that that was happening. And then I ran up there, and, and you know the rest of the story. So my life in that neighborhood lasted another two years. And then I moved to the, the other neighborhood where my mother eventually moved us. I would say the question would be more, did I run into them again after that incident? The last words that the leader of that gang told me was, you better look out on every corner because I'm going to get you because of what I did to his brother. And all I did to his brother was push him kind of hard, but it didn't kill him or anything. And it was to protect my brother. So for about three or four months on every corner, I looked both ways for a long time. I'll be honest with you. But I never saw any of them ever again. Part of the reason is, is when you're from that part of the world and there's gangs, that gang's territory is only a few blocks. Those kids didn't live in my neighborhood. But her brother was up there bothering my brother for whatever reason. So chances are you're not going to bump into people if they're out of your neighborhood. So that's a good question. The answer is I was afraid, <laughs> but it never happened, thank God. Do you think that gang is the one that came back and stabbed your father? No. You know, there were gangs not totally different than today's gangs, but they were less violent then. The gangs in my upbringing were neighborhood, hanging out, yeah, some fights, gang fights, etc. Minor. The two, the two guys that got my father were out and out junkies. No gang, just desperate for money. And you know, I'm sad for them and their condition of their life and what they do and have to do to stay alive. But that's what the kind of stuff they did every day all over the neighborhood, all over the city. So uh, not, not gang people, but crazy drug addicts. Rose has another question, which is, is your father still alive? I'm going to tell you something interesting. The answer is no, but my father, as an alcoholic and a four-pack-a-day smoker, I'm not kidding, reduced his alcohol to about a quart a day. So you can imagine how much it was before then, and down to three packs a day to the day he died at 85 years old. <laughs> Well, I just hope I got those genes because I don't do any of that crap, you know? Yeah. But, huh? Uh, I just want a happy life. I don't really care how long it is. The point is, he came from, as my second story indicates, he came from Russia. Strong Russian peasants, basically. And they were hardy people that. You could almost do anything to them, and they don't, they don't get sick. They don't die. His father was 86 years old when he died. They gave him a tracheotomy, a hole right here. The surgeon made a hole. Why would they make a hole here for a guy at 86? So he could stick a cigarette in there. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's a good question. Uh, he died 11 years ago. Rose, okay? Smoking and drinking. So these questions are from Lorimar, who is not in the room right now, but she was wondering, when you hopped on the bus at the end of your bike trip and left your bike behind, how did it feel to, to end that trip? Okay. I think which I didn't exactly leave the bike behind. I left the bike trip behind. 
So we're in Boston. I didn't tell Joe I was running away. I changed my mind for one reason, because a few days before, when I was in Montreal, Canada, at my aunt's house, my mother called her sister and was crying, really sobbing. And she was basically begging me to come home because life was so terrible. He's out of hand. He's abusive. He needs you to work. You got to get home soon. So in about two seconds, my whole plan changed about running away and doing what I wanted to do to once again doing what my family needed. And how I felt at the end of the bike trip, which I think Laura Mar is referring to, is sad and kind of like I abandoned my own dream, but I had a strong feeling after coming up this way, this part of the world, New England, that I'd be back someday because it's really nice here and I want a better life. And that's what I did. Maybe this is a good one to end on. When is book number two coming out? Okay. Well, the truth is, and maybe this is interesting for people here who want to write, I think it's really a fabulous experience to write your story your stories, or to tell your stories, however you want to do it. It doesn't have to be written. All these stories in this book were stories I told young people. And then after writing in a group for about a year, I said to myself, I'm going to put it in a book, and I learned how to write. That was about two years ago. Book number two, I've been wrestling with the idea of continuing from the end of this book, which is really my adulthood. This book ends when I'm 17. I go a little into my adulthood at the end, but not a lot. But then it it falls short because I always think of my adulthood as nothing compared to my childhood. My childhood is where all these adventures took place. However, if I stood here for five minutes and told you about my adult life, you'd think I got a lot of adventures too, because I do. But it doesn't compare for me. So I'm writing short stories now. And someday there's going to be a string of short stories that kind of tie together that I'll put in one book. And then there's the movie. Oh, yeah. The movie, as a matter of fact, as we sit. You're having a movie? Yeah, listen. Well, this is my plan. I just saw a movie the other night called Black Klansman. And it was made by, it was made by a guy named Spike Lee. So Spike Lee is my kind of guy. And I think he's going to love my book. And I think he's going to want to make a movie. That's my hunch. I'll check back with me. Check back with me in about a year, and see if that happens. Or oh, go see it in the movies. Better yet, in a few years. But I think. Yeah, yeah. I'll go to my opening and I'll sign your book and we'll. We all get VIPs. I'll buy you popcorn. Thank you so much, Steve, for talking with us. Do people want to say a collective thank you? Thank you so much.